Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. My name is Gabe Phillips and uh, I'm a world champion. So are you. Come on. Springboks, come on, man. We're all very excited about that, really thrilled. Uh, but really, really good to be together this morning in church. I want to take us back a, a few decades to the year 1954, to be exact. 1954, I was not there myself, but I've read on the internet uh, and had the facts verified on Wikipedia. But in 1954, under 12 months before Elvis Presley would become a worldwide singing sensation and issue his killer hit Heartbreak Hotel to the, to the world, Mark will sing it afterwards as well. He was routinely and re savagely rejected by record company after record company, one in particular called Monarch Records. And actually the incredible thing about this, why do we know this name of this record company? We know their name because they rejected Elvis Presley. And actually the letter of their resignation, why they was rejected taking him on as a client, as a project, as somebody to back, that letter is still in print and people can see it these days. And I want to read one of the most famous lines in the letter talking about Elvis Presley on the recommendation that this would be a great horse to back into the future. The letter from Monarch Records states, Elvis Presley, his music stinks and will not sell in LA. Their lack of enthusiasm has gone down in history and has voted one of the worst judgments of all time in the music industry. And actually, to be a bit more, let's be a little bit more sporting, in 1984, there was a moment in, for, in the NBA, the National Basketball Association, there was a team called the Portland Trailblazers, who at that level had only won one title, one national championship. But that year, 1984, they had done so well in 1983 that they had won the privilege of being able to select the first varsity pick the next year. And that system, the, 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 the teams would be able to pick all the different uh, uh, the players in the college system who've done well. And because they had done well, the Portland Trailblazers, they had first pick. And that year, 1984, the first pick option was a little-known player called Michael Jordan. And the Portland Trailblazers, the, the brain trust got together, they looked, and every team would logically take the first pick every year, would take the first pick. But they thought they knew a little bit. As they viewed this guy's stats, they viewed his height, they thought, actually, maybe this guy, will he fit in our team? And they decided, actually, against all wisdom and all uh, other people's uh, opinions going before them, they said, no, we're not going to go with Michael Jordan. We're going with the second pick, a man named Sam Bowie. Yeah, that's a big name. And they chose Pam Bowie, the Chicago Bulls, they would rub their hands in glee because they were the second in line. They were able to pick Michael Jordan. As, as they say in the classics, the rest is history. Michael Jordan with the Chicago Bulls went on to win six national championships. He is valued at $1.9 billion, and he has undisputedly been voted the best basketball player of the world, ever. History. Case closed. He's even got his own movie, Space Jam. That's, come on, that's just an extra fact. Sam Bowie, unfortunately, his career was riddled with injury after injury, and Portland Trailblazers have still got to their credit only one national championship before 1984. You see, all this comes together when actually we look back just a year ago. The Springboks were eighth in the world, and if I could quote a letter that I'm pretty sure somebody would have written, this, similar to Monarch Records, their rugby stinks and will not win the World Cup. I don't think anyone wrote that, but I think we all felt it at some stage. But all of us, if we were betting people and we put money on then that we would win the World Cup now, we would all be very wealthy. 
But I want to tell you, let me say this, with all those moments aside, whether it's Elvis Presley, which is a massive miss on their part, whether it's Michael Jordan, a massive miss for the Portland Trailblazers, goes down in history, or whether it's even the fact that we all did, did not believe that the Springboks would be able to rise from the ashes and win the World Cup, all of those things pale into insignificance when actually one day all of us will face eternity. We'll face Jesus face to face. And our prayer and our aim and our method in this, this series is that we would be a people that would not look back on our lifetimes and say, if only we knew then the situation we we're sitting on in that moment. If only then we knew the significance of that moment. If only then we knew the, the height of that moment, we would have lived differently. And I pray that you and I would make different choices because of the word being preached. I pray that you and I would live in light of not this day, not the pressures of this moment, not all the demands of this moment, but actually on the call of that moment, because eternity matters, sir, ma'am. That's why we're preaching this series, and we're praying it will change our hearts. And to quote a theologian named A.W. Tozer, and this is my appeal to us this morning, he said this to the church in his day, but it reaches our hearts now. now. He says, my call to you is to throw down your white picket fence Christianity, and pick up the danger-encircled path of obedience. And I pray that you and I will be able to do that together this morning. Luke chapter 18 is where we're going to be reading from. Verse 18 to 30 will be on the screen behind me. But uh, if you've got your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open it so you can see it in front of you. Luke chapter 18 says this. Once a rich young ruler asked Jesus this question. Good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. The man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. When Jesus heard this answer, he said, there is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. When Jesus saw this, he said, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this said, then who in the world can be saved? He replied, what is impossible for people is possible with God. Peter said, we've left our homes to follow you. Yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who's given up house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will be repaid many times over in this life and will have eternal life in the world to come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this moment, here and now. I thank you. I pray would you silence the voices of the week ahead, would you silence the accusing voices of the week gone by? And right now, would, would you make us very present here in this moment to hear your word preached to our hearts? And Father God, would your word find fertile soil as we respond in obedience to what your word calls us to? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Three things from this text this morning that I believe Jesus is calling us to in light of eternity, in light of the series. Number one is this, it'll be on the screen behind me, is that I believe Jesus is calling us to something of fresh new revelation. New revelation. You see in this text it opens up about a, a man, we've learned three things very right off the back, uh, bat about this young man, is the fact that he's number one, he's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. And that's, that might fly over your head, rich young ruler, it almost have been in church for a while, it's, just, it's almost something that you just say. 
But if you drill down into the, the Greek words of what, what is actually at play in this moment, you'll find the things behind me. The fact that when the word says rich, this was not just some new money type rich. This wasn't just a guy who just won some money or just coming to some cash and I was, I was saying, I'll pay the bill. I've got some money. No, no. This was a guy who was excessively, abundantly wealthy. This was old money. This is a guy who grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth. This is a guy who knows money. He knows his way around. He knows stocks. He knows all those things. He know, he's, he's just good with money. This is a guy who knows money, and he just drips opulence. Secondly, it says young. Now, that's not, the, the, the scholars say that he was probably young between the ages of 25 and 40. I would suggest saying, using the word young to describe a 40-year-old is pushing it. But anyway, just, let's press on ahead. Who am I to argue with the scholars? But the word young is actually not talking just about age. It's actually talking about the word there that's used is actually talking about uh, somebody who's in the prime of their life. Somebody who's, who's healthy, who's, who's got is, is, is just, is the vitality about him. He's ready to go with things ahead. This is what's meaning. Somebody's like, he's just a specimen, you know? Fafta clerk, specimen. He's in the prime of his life, and it's the last he says he's a ruler. And the word there, we don't know whether, whether we, some would argue a religious ruler or a political ruler, or we just had some influence in those realms. But the word there is to describe power, somebody had authority and significance in the community. So much so that when rich young ruler walks in, I can imagine every head would have turned. Wow, he's here. Comes in with his entourage. Boys, you stay here. I'm going to go chat to this guy. This was a guy that everyone knew in the community, somebody everyone looked up to. People would have had admired, had esteemed him. This was a significant figure in the community, and he walks in, a man with wealth, health, and power. And you know, when we, when we say like that, rich young ruler, it's easy to disconnect with the story. But when you understand that this guy had wealth, health, and power, it starts to drive a little closer to home. What do I mean by that is the fact that actually wealth, health, and significance, I believe, are the driving mechanisms of every human heart. The pursuit of it, or whether you have the lack of it, but those three things are the things that are driving every human heart. I'm the first one to put up my hand. Wealth, health, power, significance. Maybe you, you're going, not me, Gabe, not me. Well, let me, let me help us do a litmus test here. Here's the question. What do you do when one of these things is taken away? All of a sudden, the, the job that was providing the finances for your life dries up, or you know the rent is due, but you don't have the money for it. All of a sudden, there's a different response system. Wealth, all of a sudden, becomes a big deal in your life. Health, you know, don't take, no, everyone takes health for granted until it's taken away. Until a diagnosis is, is put placed over your life that's different to what you thought it would be. All of a sudden, everything is shaken. Significance is taken away. Power is taken away. All of a sudden, when relationships that you've built that you think is going to define you, all of a sudden, the spouse walks out on you. The business partner betrays you. All of a sudden, you're spoken bad of in a situation. They actually say that you feel betrayed. All of a sudden, that thing, that identity thing is taken away. All of a sudden, this guy, rich young ruler, is not someone far off, but it's actually right here. It's you and me. You see, this guy, he comes, and yeah, I say that because how do I know this even more? The number one, the top three prayer requests in every church around the world have to do with these three things. Wealth, health, significance, power. Everyone wants those things. So actually, and on their own, they're not bad things. But when they become the driving force of your, your life and your purpose, that's when they start to corrupt everything. So that's what we're on about here. And this man, this rich, young ruler, wealthy, healthy, powerful guy comes up and he's heard about Jesus. And, and Jesus' fame is trending. It's on the up. If, it, if Twitter was in that day, it would have been Jesus, the Springboks, Kanye West's new album. You know, that would have been the three big issues of the day. 
But Jesus is gaining fame. He's, he's doing miracles. He's proclaiming crazy things. He's saying the people that they thought were in are actually out, and those who are out are actually in. He's turning the whole of humanity on his head. He's prescribing a new way to be human. And this rich young ruler wants to come and align his brand, align his life to this guy. And he gets there, and we find that the first things he says to Jesus are these two words. He says, good teacher. And this is the first point of call where we need new revelation, new eyes to see Jesus, because this guy's eyes were dull to who Jesus really was. He called him good teacher. Now, let me say, Jesus was not just a good teacher, he was a great teacher. That's why his, his sermons are still recorded and held in high esteem, but actually, he did not come to be a good or great teacher. Jesus, that is the most derogatory thing, level to leave the, the encounter with Jesus, saying he was a good teacher. Because actually, to, for time's sake, I want to just get to the crux of the matter. He's not just good teacher. He is Lord and King. Something we need to have revelation and fresh insight. And just on that notion, what does revelation mean? If you are uh, unfamiliar with the word, the best description I can tell of revelation is when it moves from your head, something you know, and moves to your heart, to something you live. Revelation is like we're standing in front of a vending machine and knowing there's a Coke inside that will quench my thirst. But when the revelation is, it's not just knowing, it's putting the coin in, watching that thing happen, and the Coke pops out. That's my mime, the extent of my mime redone. Is that even a word? But the Coke comes out, and all of a sudden you experience the Coke. That is revelation, when the truth of the matter becomes real to you. So it's easy to say, Lord and King, amen, 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 is he to you. That's when revelation needs to kick in here. But Jesus is Lord and King. He has the name above every other name. Every king and kingdom, power and principality will throw themselves down before him, begging for mercy. I want to tell you, this is the king that we read about in Scripture. His eyes are blazing with fire. He rules the nations with an iron rod, and he is jealous for our hearts. Now, maybe that word jealous, you feel, doesn't seem to fit in a sermon context. Because jealous, I thought that was a negative emotion. No, not, is it, not in when it's spoken about God, because God being jealous for you and I means that He will not share us with anyone else. He wants all of you. He made you. He saved you. He wants you. He is jealous for you. That is the, nation, the notion of, of the heart of God, and He's not just content to be a Sunday pick-me-up or an add-on or a last resort, or just something, uh, you've got all your other idols, all your other mechanisms of success and happiness, and you can just fit Jesus in to fill the gaps. No, no, he says, as the old um, hymnist wrote, said, he demands my life, my soul, my all. This is the Jesus that's calling us. He says, good teacher, and then he asks a million dollar question, how do I inherit eternal life? The question that's at the very central uh, height and forefront of every religious structure and system, and actually if you scratch at the depth of every human heart, how do I inherit eternal life? The more. I want to tell you that actually in every major world religion attempts to answer this question somehow. Islam answered this way, and I apologize for the brevity of the statement because I know there's nuances to it, but for, for this time's sake, Islam says that there are five pillars of faith that need to be observed by a good Islam child or Islam person. Five pillars over their lifetime they have to achieve, and at the end of, it, at the end of the life, they are faced by God, by Allah, and He'll hold the scales in His hands, and if they, in the light of the five pillars, if those good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, then they can enter into eternal life. Buddhism says you must find the secret attain to some higher plane, and if you do that, then you will reach a state of nirvana. And again, I must say, I'm not me talking about Kurt Cobain's nirvana, I'm talking about Buddha, Buddha's nirvana, just to be clarity's sake. Hmm. Good preaching, you yeah? know, practical. 
Hinduism says this, a soul is punished or rewarded based on its past actions. And that's when karma will kick in and reincarnation, dependent on your response in life, whether it's good or bad, you'll come back as a higher being or a lower being. And then you can keep going on. Secularism, the religion of our day says, define your own truth, live your truth. Just don't infringe on anyone else's truth and then you'll be happy. Even most forms of Christianity say this way. If you poll most people and ask them, what does the church say? Most people would say, you get God if you maintain a certain sexual ethic, if you don't listen to rap music, unless it's Kanye's new Christian one, and if you, of course, if you attend church. Now, I can imagine, so Jesus plays this guy's game. This guy's coming with every, he's coming with that system saying, what is your system for me to get there, Jesus? And Jesus plays him his own game and says to him, actually, obey all the commands. Do, what, what, is, what, is the, what does the Torah say? Just do that. And the guy goes, I've done it all. And his entourage are high-fiving. We back the right horse. Come on. He says, I've done it all. And he says, Jesus, I've actually, I've done everything. And I've just, yeah, I've, I've built my ladder. I've climbed the ladder. I feel I'm really doing well. I'm just one step away. Good teacher. Just tell me that one extra step that you can add on for me. And in that one moment, Jesus there does something so powerful. In one fell swoop, Jesus doesn't just give him an extra step on the ladder. Jesus burns the whole ladder down. Because Jesus says, I'm not just another step. Actually, in fact, you're, you're not up the wrong ladder. You're also on the wrong wall. You're so far away from it, my friend. In this moment, because Jesus is saying, he makes claim after claim that is opposition to every other world religion. He doesn't offer a way to eternal life. He says, I am eternal life. I am eternal life. And actually, Jesus, opposed to every other world religion, world religion says, and including moralistic, therapeutic deism of Christianity that is often offered of make your way to God, Jesus says this, God made his way down to you the only religion that says that. We need new eyes to see Jesus, and I see his invitation for eternity in this, in this journey. Secondly, though, he doesn't just leave us there with a, a quest for new revelation. He says, I'm calling you to a response. You see, if it will be on the text behind us, after this back and forth with this guy, he says, what one thing do I lack? What one thing? And Jesus says, well, this is the one thing you lack, as the book of Mark puts it. He says this, sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, if we only had Luke chapter 18, and this was the only text we would read, we would be forgiven to think that there was, this was uh, some socialist Jesus saying, this is your way to heaven. Sell everything, give it to the poor, and then you'll have eternal life. But actually, we know that actually this is the only time Jesus asked anyone to do that. Even Zacchaeus was only told to give away half of his wealth. You know, this is not some new, like, new standard that he's putting in place. But actually, Jesus wasn't after his money. Jesus was after his heart. It's actually after his freedom. You see, Mark chapter 10, a, a different rendition. Mark writing about the same events. Mark throws in this line, because he was a man who was, who was of emotion, watched Jesus and how he interacted with people. Just before we made the statement, Mark says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. This man, Jesus looked at this man, not with, with, an, with anger, not with resentment, not with you fallen short, but loving him, saying, I want to put on an on offer to, on the table. I want to put an offer for your freedom, my friend. I want to set you free from the, the bounds of, the, of this world. And actually, you see in this moment, Jesus says to the thing that actually we often miss, and we need to underline in our Bibles if you still do that. It's a great practice to do. But actually, the whole emphasis there was he was saying, give it away. Why? So you can come follow me. Jesus wanted him to follow him. and says, there's something in your hands, something in your way that is stopping you following me fully. And you see, many of us can't follow Jesus how we should because we are bound by the pursuit and false promises of earthly treasures. This pursuit controls, distorts, and manipulates our emotions, cravings, and motives. Can I be honest? I put my hand up here. 
Many of us are not following Jesus the way we should because we've allowed our hearts to become bound up by the pursuit of wealth, health, or power. That thing corrupts us and distorts us. But even let me say there, we theologize often, even when I read this text, I'm the first person to put, I'm, I'm preaching to myself, this whole series, I don't know about you, this is doing something to me. It's doing something to me, and I hope it's doing something in your hearts. But, but actually, this, as I read these texts, we, often we theologize our way around the issues. You know, we, we theologize our way into lukewarm, half-hearted, apathetic obedience. You know, we'll say things like this, hey, you know, Jesus, you know, uh, he, he's, not, he's actually not talking just about, it's not about money, you know, and, and we know it's not about money, you know, it's not, uh, that was just for that guy, he's after the guy's heart. Even when I say, he's not after your money, he's after your heart, we all go, amen, because we're like, thank God he's not after our money. <laughs> but let me say, can I tell you, as I read this text, this text is also about money. It's littered with the money. This whole story is about a guy and money. And then he talks about the disciples, about treasures in heaven, kingdom of God, treasures in eternity. This text is all about it. And actually, if you trace Jesus' teaching on eternity, heaven and hell, money and wealth and possessions are always close behind it or before it. Because Jesus knew that humanity's hearts are going to be tethered to the things of here and now. And that's going to pull us away and distort us from the pursuit of eternity. So we're saying if he can loosen our hands of these things, maybe we can fill them up with eternal things. This is not just about a rich young ruler. It's about you and I, sir, man. You see, in this moment, I read Revelation 3. It's a, it's a text that, that uh, fiery, fire and brimstone preachers will use to scare people. But it's in the Bible, and it's real. But Revelation 3, to a letter to the church in Laodicea, God speaking says, you are ne- neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm, so I'll spit you out my mouth. Now, it's, uh, in, if you've ever had a coffee, well, a hot coffee, it's nice. Iced coffee, it's refreshing. Lukewarm coffee, ugh. And Jesus is saying, that is how your lives are towards me. Your response towards me is like that, ugh. But let's find the context of it. Revelation 3 to the church in Laodicea, why were they lukewarm? The very next word, verse tells us, in Revelation 3, says this, this is why you say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, what is so key in that statement there is those five words actually have the word and in between them because actually scholars say those words are not just five words. They actually can be distilled down to three Greek words. And those three Greek words are the exact antithesis of rich young ruler. A man who thought that my, my whole life is based on my success, my wealth, my health, my prosperity, my significance. Jesus is saying, actually, in light of that, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. You see, on basis of this, the scripture tells us that the rich young ruler went away sad. Another text says he went away grieved. Why? Comet says because he had many riches, because he was very rich. But you know what scares me about this? is that I can imagine that this guy, who we can imagine from the reading of the scripture and the estimation of the disciples, he was a moralistic guy, a good guy, probably quite generous and probably a nice guy to be around hospital, probably. I can imagine that guy would have went away sad, but next week you would have found him in in the pew of a synagogue, paying his money, singing the songs, doing the whole shindig. And my fear, sir man, is that many of us are sitting hearing sermons after sermon after sermon, and we're leaving unchanged, and just keep playing the game, but we are living in lukewarm, apathetic obedience and calling it holiness. Because actually what we're doing is we're just putting up another tick list that I can keep this thing going. But Jesus burns that whole thing down. 
It's revelation response. But thirdly, a thing that's in this text that we have to get to is this thing of rewards. Here's the good news. The disciples, this conversation gets, the disciples watching this whole thing, they say, if he can't get him, if he can't get him, that guy, who, that's why they probably esteem him highly, and they say, if that guy can't get him, what chance do we have? Us reprobates. Look, Judas is stealing money while you're doing this teaching, Jesus. How are we, how are we gonna, how can anyone get saved if he's not in? And Jesus makes a profound statement, he says, what is impossible for man? And that there's no truer declaration of the gospel. It is impossible for you and I to be saved. Yeah. Comma. But what is impossible for man is only possible for God. The story keeps going. And Peter says this. It's amazing. I love this little thing. It's almost like a little side there. It tells us, Peter. And Peter says, almost, I can just imagine it. Peter says, the text, I read it in the text where he says, Peter says, we've left homes to come follow you. But my, as I read it, I can imagine Peter nervously saying it under his breath. We've, we've left. A bit sarcastic. We've left homes to come follow you. And he was a bit nervous because Peter and Jesus had a relation. Peter said stupid things, and Jesus would rebuke him often. So I can imagine he was like, we've left homes. Please don't call me Satan again. <laughs> but Jesus responds amazingly to us when he says, we've left homes to follow you. Jesus responds so profoundly that actually we have to take note of. Let's read it together on the screen. It says this, Jesus says this, I assure you that everyone who has given up house or wife or brothers or parents or child, uh, Matthew and Mark will say land and possessions as well, for the sake of the kingdom of God, will be repaid many times over in this life and will have eternal life in the world to come. This is profound. This is not some prosperity preacher who's arrived in a, in a Bentley and usurping a Concord to go around the world. This is not some false promise of a, somebody who cannot deliver on this promise. This is Jesus saying, if you respond in a way like this, if you open your hand, you will have rewards in this life and eternity. And this is not the only time Jesus talks about rewards. Rewards are littered throughout his teachings. If you pray and seek it, the Father will reward you. If you give and seek it, the Father will reward you. If you fast and seek it, the Father, who knows, will reward you. This is, this is Jesus' teaching. He's telling us about this thing. And actually, the amazing thing in this moment is Jesus is telling us two things. Number one, he's telling us in this world, right now, at this time, we'll receive rewards many times over in this life. I want to tell you the joy the peace, the power, the anointing, and the favor that you and I have access to and are, are invited to walk into now would blow our minds if we could see it. And actually, Jesus wants us to see it. We are called to be the most free, the most joyful, and the most dangerous people on planet Earth. And yet the church, our church often live for now, usurping the eternal rewards, and in the same breath are giving away the power they're called to walk in now because of lukewarm, apathetic responses. But secondly, we're also told there's eternal life in the world to come. There's rewards waiting for us. And a phrase, a, a little poem that was written by a theologian many years ago, haunts me and encourages me and kicks me up the butt and, and, and spurs me on at the same time every time I remember it. It's a short little phrase that says this about the church. It says, we spend, all our, we spend all our days seeking money, seeking fame, but none of heaven knows our name. You know what's so fascinating about this story is the story opens with a political figure, a religious figure called a rich young ruler who everyone would have known. Everyone would have known his name, would have known his bio, would have known his kids' names, would have known his, 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 his Wikipedia page. They would have known everything about him and would have fawned over him going, wow, he's here. Wow, that's exciting. Scripture refuses to tell us his name. But there's a guy at the end doing this with his foot in the corner going, we've given up homes. And that name Peter is remembered into eternity. 
because of a different response, not because of what he had, but how he responded. The story, I want to tell you what's waiting for you and I. Jesus tells us that there is a reward that cannot be stolen, rusted, eaten, or devalued. It's waiting for us if we open our hands. And that's where I'll tell you and land this moment by telling you about a man named Jim Elliott. He lived in the 1950s, 1940s, 1950s, and as a young 20-year-old in 1953, a man who would have epitomized everything the rich young ruler was in his day, Jim Elliott would have been himself. A man of wealth, he came from money, he came from, a, he came from a home of means, he had power, he had health, he was young, he had his world ahead of him, people were uh, lining him up for a political career, he decided to go on, the, uh, on a religious adventure, and, and there people said, no, that's great, you can bring change there, he's an incredible public speaker, an amazing orator, a great figure in the community, but this is where Jim Elliott's story sidewalks away from the rich young ruler. Jim Elliott's story doesn't have him leaving away sad. He sees Jesus and he sees the mission. He sees eternity. Jim Elliott gets married. He has a kid. But eternity is beating in his heart. And he's saying actually wealth, health, and power die and respond to eternity, in response of eternity. So Jim Elliott has heard of the Alka tribe in Ecuador. And this amazing tribe who were there were a bunch of people who had never heard the gospel Secondly, they were an isolated tribe who actually never really engaged with any other part of humanity. A tribe in Ecuador. And Jim Elliot's heart beat saying, if, if I don't go, if I don't go tell them how they'll hear about Jesus. So Jim Elliot and his five friends, they stayed, they left their kids and their family, and they went, they went on this expedition over years as they, they built this relationship by helicopter, dropping off gifts and trying to win the, the, the favor and win the friendship of these people that they actually don't, we're not a threat to you. And they started to win, they warmed up to each other as they from a distance wooed this people. And at the moment came when they decided, actually, tomorrow we're going to go. We're going to fly in there. And we're going to have the first face-to-face -face meeting with these people. We're going to preach to them. And the famous story goes on. The Jim Elliot steps off the plane. And as he's about to open his mouth and greeted by this tribe, an arrow is let loose. Woof, flies to his head and he dies instantly without saying a word. His four friends' bodies are later also found floating down the river, not one of them being able to preach, slaughtered as they stepped off the plane. Headline after headline after headline in America was this, what a waste. The church needs to be held out for account, sending our best and brightest to foreign mission fields where they're getting slaughtered for what? For what? A guy who could have added so much to our economy, could have added so much to our future. And for what has he done this for? And people were up in arms about this until they discovered his diaries. And his diaries that had written and inscribed again and again, the simple quote says this, Jim Elliott writing, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let me say it again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. On the back of that, and people hearing that, can I tell you what happened in America? Student after student after student enrolled in the missionary organization and went to that tribe. Hundreds upon hundreds of students followed in his wake, and that tribe received Jesus, so much so that the people who were, who were held for account for killing Jim Elliot and the four other friends were ended up baptizing Jim Elliot's daughter. This is when eternity grips the hearts of men and women. Can I tell you, you take this from a far-flung jungle in Ecuador, and it comes lands right here in our hearts here. Jesus is saying to us, he has a reward for us. He has a reward for us that cannot be stolen, cannot be devalued, cannot be rusted, eaten, or taken away. Why? Because he has his, our names written on his chest as the high priest in heaven, just as the high priest in the old did, have the names of the tribes engraved upon his heart. 
Jesus has that for you and I. Isaiah 49 tells us he's got our names engraved on his hand, on the palm of his hand. Jesus tells us that he's prepared a room for us where he's going. He's told us that actually he'll we'll rule and reign with him for an eternity. And he told us the best news of all, that when we close our eyes on this side of eternity and we open them to that side of eternity, we'll hear not the thunderous applause of man, the deeds of our day. We won't hear the booze of when we failed. We won't have any of those things laid before us. We'll have these words, well done, good and faithful servant. Those are waiting for us. And let me tell you, that I must deal with the elephant in the room quickly. The disciples were told, you will have rewards in this life. Every single one of them was persecuted and died a martyr death. I've got to put that out there. They didn't live out their days in opulence on top of a hill, Malibu Hill, looking at the beach. Jesus was proved right. No, they all died. But can I tell you, history tells us, Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us that every single one of them, as they died facing crucifixion, being boiled in oil, left alone on an island to die, put in prison, whatever fate was theirs, every single one of them, not one of them is recorded, it wasn't worth it. Not one of them, every single one of them died with their eyes looking to eternity, waiting the well done, good and faithful servant. Why? Because in this life, your greatest reward, sir, ma'am, is actually not your wealth, your health, or your prosperity, or your significance. It's Jesus. He is all you need right now. Jesus is that. He says, actually, I am all that enough for you. And in eternity, your greatest reward is not streets paved with gold. It's none of that. All that stuff will be great, but can I tell you the greatest reward that's waiting us is Jesus. And let me say this, if your heart is not stirred by that and you're going, is that it? Then sir, ma'am, you may be the rich young ruler who will walk away sad today because you are very rich, because you're holding on to something. Today, sir, ma'am, Jesus' grace is extended to you and I saying, I'm opening your eyes so you can see me and you can respond to me. And on the back of that, I am a God who provides extravagantly. I'm a God who will care for you. I'm a God who clothes the birds in the air, clothes the flowers on the ground. I've never seen the God's children begging for bread. I'm a God who is your provider. I will look after you. But even when your wealth fails you, even when your health fails you, even when your people turn their backs on you, I will still be enough. This is the gospel that's reaching a heart that demands a response. It demands not just applause. It demands not a tick box. It demands not, yeah, I'll give that a try. It demands our life, our soul, our all. Why? Because eternity matters. Stamp our eyeballs with eternity. Let me tell you about this man, Jesus, as we land. Jesus, was he rich? You bet he was. But 2 Corinthians 9 verse 9 tells us what he did with those riches. It says, though he was rich, Yet for our sakes, he became poor so that by his poverty, he could make us rich. Was he young? Maybe in age, but he was not in the prime of his life with his life lying ahead of him. Why? Because he died at 33. Isaiah 53 says that no one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short midstream. Was he a ruler? Yep, he had all power and authority. But this is what Philippians 2 tells us he did with that. It says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, humbling himself in obedience to God, dying a criminal's death on a cross. As we land, let me tell you, as you come to Jesus today, I pray you find two startling facts. The gospel demands more than you could ever first imagine. It demands everything. Second fact I'd love you to find is that actually the gospel supplies more than you ever dreamt of. This is the good news of the gospel. 
that actually when Jesus calls us, Jesus says, I will pay for everything as you respond in obedience. This is what we call to. So why don't we stand in this moment? Maybe you're here today and you've been running from Jesus. Maybe you've been, when I say running, maybe it's been in, in sinful habits and, and practices and you've been living large, debaucherous life, but somehow you found your way to church today. Or maybe even more scarily, you've been hiding that and you've been sitting in church for a long time playing church games, but actually you haven't bowed your knee to Jesus. Today's the day, sir, ma'am. Don't wait for another moment. Don't go away sad. Don't go grieving. Don't go holding on to your small pitiful things that will just disappear. Give them to him and say, Jesus, I'm coming after you. If you today need to make a decision for Christ, whether it's the first time or the hundredth time, I don't care. But before God, would you lift your hand to him? If that's you, with every eye closed, would you lift your hand, please? Is there someone? Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Father, as these hands go up, let's, let's pray for these people. As these hands go up, three people that I can count. As hands go up, four people, sir, I see that hand. If there four hands go up, God, are, we know our hands don't save us. Jesus does. But Father, I thank you as these hands go up, they're symbolizing a heart that's saying, Jesus, I'm repenting of trusting myself. I'm repenting of trusting my own ability to make things happen. And today I say, Jesus, I'm yours forever. And I thank you, Father God, by your spirit, would you seal what you're doing, what you're bubbling and stirring in their hearts? Would you seal that like only you can? And I thank you, Father God, that your blood right now speaks a better word over their life. Whatever the enemy has spoken, whatever the past has declared, whatever their actions have laid to waste, I thank you that your blood says, welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome home. And I pray this over your sons and daughters. Can we lift our hands as we land? Jesus, I pray for your church, your people, sons and daughters of the living God. We are people, I pray, an old prayer. We don't want to be stirred and not changed. I thank you, Father God, your word has found good ground today. I pray, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see you, not just as good teacher, not just as an add-on, but as our Lord and King. And would we have the courage now to bow our knees Open our hands and say, it's all yours, Jesus. I thank you, Father, emblazon eternity in our hearts. Wreck us for any other life. Wreck us for any other superficial event. Right now, Father God, when people are in need for money, when people are in need for health, when people are in need for, for, uh, for significance or relationships to be made whole, I thank you, Father God, you're a good God. You're a God who says, I will provide. Make a way, Jesus. I pray, Father God, you say you're a God who heals. Would you heal like only you can, Jesus? We pray that. Would you come right now and restore hearts that are broken, hearts that have been shattered? Restore that in Jesus' name. But Father, do that by lifting Jesus as the goal of our hearts. Lift Jesus above that, God, that actually if everything else fails, you are enough. Pray this for us as a people, Jesus, because eternity matters. We make different decisions today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.